0: Well good morning everyone. It's good to see you all and to be here together with you and uh, it's always a joy to come up and uh, and visit with you in San Jose. Uh, it always feels like uh, in a way I'm visiting home and seeing family and uh, we praise God for that for the love that we have between our churches and uh, it's uh it's great to be indoors and see all of your masked faces, uh, but uh, we trust the Lord with the, the future. We trust the Lord even with what's going on with this pandemic, and hopefully uh, things will calm down and we can kind of do what we're used to doing. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we are this morning, and uh, oftentimes when I go to speak at other places, uh, the topic comes up, you know, what should I speak on, and and usually the response is just speak whatever's on your heart, and for me that's always the last thing I preached, and so that's uh, what we're looking at uh, this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13. And this is God's Word. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'll keep reading just for the sake of the context. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man." thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Please bow your heads as we pray one more time and ask God to help us as we open up his word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing kindness and love. We thank you for the truth of the songs that we sang about your amazing love, Lord, and the work that you have performed in us to bring us to salvation. And God, this is one of those gospel passages that speaks about the the transformation that takes place in our lives. And I pray, Father, that as we open up your word together, you would be good to give us understanding. Help us to see the beautiful things, the wonderful things in Your Word, Lord. and I pray that it would be of great help to us. Give us teachable hearts. ears ready to listen. God, help us in humility to come before You to consider, God, where it is that we need to grow and to change, how we ought to think differently, how we ought to behave differently. And I pray, God, that Your Spirit would work in us. And accomplish God honoring change that uh, we would be well pleasing in your sight. So, Father, thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a, a significant passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I know a lot, of, a lot of you are probably familiar with the second chapter of Ephesians because of everything that preceded, uh, especially in verses 1 through 10, where. Where the Apostle Paul walks through maybe one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the New Testament, where he talks about how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, that we've been made alive together with Christ by by God who is rich in mercy, that by, by grace we have been saved. And now that we come to verse eleven, he's kind of just continuing on. Thinking further this theme of the change that has taken place, in verses 1 through 10, he contrasts our former state of having been dead in our sins to our new state of being made alive together with Christ. And then in verses 11 through 13, focuses on how we were once far apart from God, but now have, in Christ have been brought near understand the significance of this passage I think it is helpful to grasp the, the outlines of the book of Ephesians in general and some of you know this that there are six chapters in the book of Ephesians and it breaks down fairly evenly the first three chapters kind of walk through it's kind of a what we call an indicative theme walking through kind of the facts of the gospel who we are Uh, And and then in chapters 4 through 6, it turns more to an imperative theme. In light of who we are, what, what are we supposed to be doing? If you want to break it down another way, you could say that 1 through 3 explain our position in Christ, and then in chapters 4 through 6, it explains our practice. Or in chapters 1 through 3, it talks about what God has done, about the problem with the root of our hearts, and then in chapters 4 through 6, starts walking through what the fruit of our lives ought to be. And so one of the observations that you make as you walk through the book of Ephesians is that kind of conspicuously, in the opening three chapters, there aren't a lot of commands. Whereas in chapters 4 through 6, it's chock full of commands, of things that you are not to be doing, but but instead you ought to be doing these other things. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, there's only one command. One command in the first three chapters, and we find it in our passage this morning. The command is to remember. He says it in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The command is to remember. The command is to remember. Because... When God does something incredible, and in particular when He saves His people, the call then is to remember. It reminds me of what His instructions were to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. After He delivered His people from Egypt through the hand of Moses... In Exodus chapter 13, He sets up a memorial feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the 13th chapter of Exodus, God tells His people, I've set up this feast for you that you might remember. Remember My strong hand. Remember My deliverance. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And I brought you out by My mighty hand. In fact, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 18. He reminds the people of Israel, "...but you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish." But like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. God warned His people in the book of Deuteronomy, if you forget, if you fail to remember, then just like all the nations that perish before you, you too will perish. Not to necessarily give away the ending and spoil it for you, but as you read through the Old Testament, you come to realize that His people do forget. They do turn their hearts away from the Lord. They don't remember how God delivered their fathers before them. They turn to their own sin, their own idolatry, their own spiritual adultery, and so God gives them over to the nations, and they go off into exile. You see, the problem with us is that we are also prone to forget I mean, it's not even just the sin that so easily entangles us, but just the everyday, mundane things of life. How easy is it to become so focused on the here and now? How easy is it just to focus on the things around us, our family, our jobs, our hobbies? You know how prone we are to forget. We set aside spiritual things, even for things that are just infinitesimally small in comparison forget Jesus for the sake of Netflix. You know, we'll forget Jesus for the sake of our video games. How easy is it for us to forget? And so I love the reminders that God sets up for us in the Scriptures to remember. It's one of the things that we do periodically as a church when we take communion together. I really do believe in the wisdom of God. He has set up a light for us to remember the cross of Christ, to remember that He came in flesh, as we take the bread, to remember that He spilled His blood at the cross, He died on our behalf when we take the cup. And regularly we're reminded of who we are in Him. And what we are to do as we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In the wisdom of God, because we are so prone to forget, He sets up a memorial for us that we too might remember. Having been saved in such an amazing way, for which we ought to be eternally grateful, we have a propensity to move on and to revert back to the mundane. And so, I love passages like this that 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 really tell us that we ought to recount the great things that God has done for us and remember His grace. If you're taking notes, we're going to see two reminders. Two reminders about how God saved His church. Two reminders about how God saved His church. And the first we see in verses 11 and 12. How did God save His church? Well, first, remember that you were formerly distant. Remember that you were formerly distant. The Apostle Paul here is clearly writing uh, to a predominantly Gentile audience. I think that resonates with us. As I look out here, I don't think I see too many Jewish people. Right? And so when we think about a passage that applies directly to a Gentile audience, this certainly uh, has application for us. And it applies to us in that it paints a bleak picture of what we once were before Christ. He begins in verse 11 by speaking about their former identity. About their former identity. And again, it's clear that Paul is speaking from a Jewish perspective. How do we know that? Well, first, he refers to his audience as Gentiles. And there's no Greek or Roman person who referred refer to themselves as a Gentile. That word itself has a Jewish flavor to it. But besides that, he uses the categories of uncircumcision and circumcision, which is a very Jewish idea, and it really does need some more explanation. Back in the book of Genesis, especially in chapter 12, when God calls a guy named Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, He says, Abram, I want you to go. I want you to take your family and uproot from your security of your nation and the comfort of the people that you know. And I want you to go to a place that I have assigned for you. And I'm going to turn you into a nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And in that Abrahamic covenant, God promises them essentially three things. I'm going to give you a a, a land... I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to give you blessing. And Abram, in faith, obeys the Word of God and goes to the place that God has assigned for him. Well, in Genesis chapter 17, God sets up a sign for that covenant. And He says, I want you to take all the males in your household, and your servants, and everyone, and I want you to circumcise them in their flesh. Circumcision is a sign of the old covenant. And and Jews became very proud of that heritage. They found confidence in their identification in God, a very physical reminder of who they were, set apart from all the other nations of the world as God's chosen people. If you remember in Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talked about how he once boasted of this. Chapter 3, Starting in verse 4, he says, "...although I might, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more." And what's the first thing he finds confidence in in verse 5? "...circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." The Apostle Paul says, "If anyone had any reason to find confidence in the flesh, I more than anyone else, because of how zealous I was for the law. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents did it the right way and made sure it was in adherence to the word of God. It became a sign of the of the heritage of the people. Some of the Jewish people found much pride in." But what's significant in this passage is not only does Paul clearly speak from that Jewish perspective, he also explains very clearly that those, that those categories of identification no longer bear any significance today. He speaks it very clearly. That no, he no longer regards this distinction of uncircumcision and circumcision as having any value And that's really significant, given what we just read in Philippians 3. Paul was the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As as to the law, he was a Pharisee, he was zealous. And for someone who was so steeped in that tradition and brought up in that tradition, to then speak in terms where he's describing circumcision and uncircumcision as having no value, that's particularly significant. How do we know that Paul is communicating this in this way. First, he talks about, and he says this twice, that circumcision and uncircumcision are in the flesh. Are in the flesh. And yeah, he may be just speaking about our bodies, that this is a physical sign. But given the context of what's going on here, I really do believe that there is a tinge here where he is contrasting the things of the flesh with the things of the Spirit of God. The flesh in the New Testament is oftentimes contrasted with the Spirit. It reminds me of what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Not only does he describe circumcision and uncircumcision as in the flesh, but then he also, twice in this passage, talks about how they are the so-called circumcision and the so-called uncircumcision. These just turns. A clear indicator that Paul no longer regarded circumcision as anything that is significant. Again, just bear in mind how crazy this is because he was the self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews. Proud of his cultural and religious heritage. But maybe no phrase brings to mind this idea of the insignificance of circumcision, and what he says at the end of the verse, that he says that it was performed in the flesh by human hands. By human hands, as opposed to the hands of God. He's, he's talking about a man-made thing. In fact, when you look at Isaiah chapter 2, and again in Isaiah chapter 31, What are the things that Isaiah, that the Lord speaks about as being made with human hands? It's the idols of the nations. They fashion these things with their hands. They make these things with their hands. When you come to the New Testament, how is this phrase used? It oftentimes is used to describe the temple of God. Like in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching his sermon, and he talks about how the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. In contrast, the Bible talks about how God made with His hands the heavens and the earth. And so when he talks about how these things are made by human hands, he's contrasting it with the things that are made by God. These are not categories that are important to Paul any longer. They've been nullified in the cross of Christ. You, the Gentiles in the flesh. The so-called uncircumcision. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Paul couldn't be any clearer that their identity... These categories of circumcision and uncircumcision mean very little to him any longer. But he goes on from talking about their identity in verse 11 to talking about their former position in verse 12. Their former position in verse 12. But he says, Remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And in a quick fire succession, he gives these five descriptions of what their former position was. One would describe them as those who were outside of the, of the privileges of Israel. And uh, he talks about these, this former position first by saying that they were separate from Christ. You Gentiles in the flesh were once separate from Christ. Now that's kind of odd, don't you think? Because when we think about the Gospel, we would maybe conclude, but isn't that true of everyone? Does that does, How does that apply simply to Gentiles and, and not to Jews? I mean, if we are not believing, whether Jews or Gentiles, are we all separate from Christ? And so in what way is this first category, in what way is this unique to those who are Gentiles? It helps to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. That Christ is a Messianic title. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. Going along with the Jew and Gentile theme, Paul is probably talking about the hope of the Messianic promises here. That this is what they were excluded from. This is what they were separate from. They didn't have the promises. I think about Psalm 2. and that amazing, because There are a lot of passages we could go to to explain the hope of the Messiah. But Psalm 2 is one of them. And in the second psalm, the psalmist writes this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Mashiach, against His Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and He will speak to them in His anger, and terrify them in His fury, saying, that as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The New Testament makes it clear in several places, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that this passage in Psalm 2 is referring to Jesus. That Jesus is God's Messiah. That He is the Christ. And all the promises of deliverance and salvation in the Old Testament that were given to God's people. That this deliverance would come by way of God's Mashiach. The Gentiles were excluded from those promises. And when you take Psalm 2 at face value, the psalmist says, why are the nations in an uproar? Why have they devised such a vain thing? are looking at Yahweh and they're looking at his Mashiach and saying let us cast their fetters off from us. You see, it isn't even just that the Gentiles, the nations were separate from the promises of the Messiah. It's as if Paul is saying, you represent the nations that are in uproar. You represent the nations that have devised the vain thing. You represent the nations that shook your fist in the face of God, saying, let us tear their fetters off from us so we can do our own thing. You represent the nations of which it was said the Lord scoffs at them. He laughs at them. And you look at the context of what's going on here. It is remarkable because essentially what Paul is saying is instead of God scoffing at you and laughing at you and bringing his judgment upon you, he saved you. You were far off, but you've been brought near. You were deserving of that condemnation, and yet instead he saved you. He saved you. You were separate from the promises of salvation and restoration through God's Messiah. You've been brought near. You have been saved. The second benefit he talks about here is that the second disadvantage he talks about here is that they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That word commonwealth can also be translated citizenship. The Jews were the people of God extremely blessed and given huge spiritual advantages. Again, this kind of rubs us the wrong way as Christians who understand the gospel of Christ. Because if I stood up here and I asked you this question, as it pertains to God's salvation, what advantage is there to being Jewish? When you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, What advantage is there to being Jewish? And of course, we who know the Gospel would say, there's no advantage. Right? Our heritage doesn't save us. We're saved by the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone. Look back at Romans chapter 3, though. Romans chapter 3, which is a familiar passage to us, I think, because of... Familiar verses like Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what you might not be familiar with is what the Apostle Paul writes at the beginning of Romans 3 because he asks the question, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, what is the benefit of circumcision? Again, if we ask this question to a Christian audience, Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Is there any advantage to being circumcised? And to a Christian audience, we would say, No! Everyone equally has sinned before God. Everyone is in need of the grace of God to save. And it isn't that Paul is contradicting that, but listen to his answer in verse 2. What is the advantage of being Jewish? What is the advantage of having circumcision? Great! In every respect. And first of all, or especially, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. You want to talk about advantages to being part of God's people? Let me lay it down for you, at least from an Old Testament lens. All the other nations of the world did not have the law of God. But the Jews did. So what advantage was there to being Jewish? The Apostle Paul answers the question. There was a great advantage. And he continues to explain that advantage in chapter 9 of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul shares his heart of wanting his people, Israel, to be saved. And he says, "For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever." Amen. You want to talk about advantages? that the Jewish people had. I mean, he just gives us a bullet list of, of all these advantages. They were adopted as God's children. They had the presence of God, the glory of God. I mean, think about that alone. As they were wandering in the wilderness or, or standing outside the temple and the glory of God was over the holy place I mean imagine right now if we were having service and just behind me was the, the, the physical kind of presence of God His Shekinah glory resting right here on the drum set. I mean wouldn't that kind of help you focus on what we're talking about right now? See the Jews had that. They were adopted as His children. They had the presence of God, His glory. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the temple. They had the the promises. They had the patriarchs. And they had the Messiah. What advantage is there to being Jewish? Paul says there were great advantages. And it's to all of that, as he's talking to this Gentile audience in Ephesus, And he says, you Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. All these advantages that the Jews had, you didn't have. You didn't have. But folks, God had a plan. And he communicates this plan, not just in the New Testament, but he communicates it in the Old Testament as well. Look at Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. If you just open your Bible in the middle, you'll probably be in Isaiah. Isaiah 56. The book of Isaiah talks about the impending doom that's coming upon God's people. That God's going to bring judgment by way of exile. But in the context of what's going on in Isaiah, he also provides a message of hope and a message of comfort. That even though you are going to go off into exile because of your sins, there is going to be a day of restoration. If only you would turn your heart to the Lord. If only you would repent of your sins and come back to God, your Savior. He would save you. But listen to what he says in chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner, the outsider, the Gentile, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. And also the foreigners, the outsiders, the Gentiles, Verse 6, who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So even in the Old Testament, God understood that the nations were separate. That the nations were far off. But even in the Old Testament, He makes the promise that if they were to draw near to Him, to listen to Him, to obey His law, to to keep the covenant, that they too would be invited into His house. And His house would be a house of prayer for the nations. Isaiah 56 gives a promise to the foreigners, to the outsiders, to the Gentiles who are separate, that they too can be saved. And at least, in some measure, we see a fulfillment of that here. As the Apostle Paul looks at the Gentiles and says, "...you were once far off, you were excluded, you were strangers." were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were excluded from all of these spiritual advantages. But now in Christ, you've been brought near. There's a third... He says, you are strangers to the covenants of promise. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. Namely, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, by which God made promises of salvation to His people. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where God promised His people three things. That He would make them a nation and give them land and seed and a blessing. Uh, And then it opens up even more. In Second Samuel 7, when God makes His promise to David and tells him, I'm going to give, him, give you an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting throne. One of your descendants is going to sit on this throne and his throne will be everlasting. The scepter will never leave his hand. The crown will never leave his head. The kingdom will be forever. And when you get to Jeremiah 31, you hear about the New Covenant. And how God is going to bring a people for Himself to be His possession. Because the people of God had demonstrated generation after generation that their sin keeps messing things up. And so in Jeremiah 31, God promises Israel and Judah, I'm making a New Covenant with you, not like the Old Covenant. That your father's blue, right? It's not like the old covenant that they broke, even though I was a, a husband to them. I'm making a new covenant. And no longer are you going to have to tell your neighbor, go ahead and know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, what God is saying is that there's going to come a day for His people, for Israel, when every single person is going to be saved. From the greatest of them to the least of them. And that's how He's going to bring a people for His own possession. It's not going to be because they adhere to the law, because they can't do it. They've demonstrated that generation after generation. God says, I'm going to make you new. And a day is coming when every single last one of you is going to be saved from the greatest to the least. Ezekiel 36 expands on this and helps us to understand how God is going to do that. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. This heart of stone that's dead and cold, I'm going to remove it from you. And I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart that beats and pumps blood to the body and gives life. I'm going to perform a heart transplant in you. And you who were once dead are going to be made alive. These are the promises. The magnificent promises in God's grand plan of redemption for His people. How He was going to bring salvation. How He was going to crush the head of the serpent that He promised in Eden. If you look back at Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, God makes mention of this promise. Leviticus 26 is in the context of talking about this law that he's giving to his people and the blessings that would come from obeying the law in contrast with the curses that would come from their disobedience. And having walked through this long section about disobedience, at the end of 26, starting in verse 40, he does say this, if they confess their iniquity... And the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so they then make amends for their iniquity. Then, verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. God says, if they turn from their sin and their iniquity, then I'll forgive them. But on what basis, I'll, I'll forgive them on the basis of the promise that I made. I'll remember my covenant. It's that promise that the Apostle Paul, looking at the Gentile believers in Ephesus, tells them, you are strangers to these things. You were excluded from these covenants. You weren't part of the, the covenant people of God. You were strangers to this. You didn't have the same promises. A fourth disadvantage he talks about is that they had no hope. They had no hope because a life lived apart from God provides no true hope. Hope in the Bible... It's so different than how we use the word in English. You know, we use hope as kind of a synonym for a wish. I hope the weather is good today. I hope I win the lottery someday. Don't play the lottery. Right? That's how we use the word hope. I hope my birthday party is awesome. I hope we have a great day today. And that's how we use the word hope. But the Bible uses the word hope in a different way. It is a faithful waiting on God. It's a waiting with expectation. It's a hope that's based on unbreakable promises. We hope in the return of Christ because Christ, who cannot lie, has promised He's coming back. We hope in future salvation that our sins will one day, the presence of sin from our lives, will be removed. Because the Bible promises that for us. We hope for the joys of heaven. And we hope in the fact that this life is not the end. Because one day we're going to be with Him and walk with Him. We hope in these things because unlike the Gentiles, unlike the nations, We've been given the oracles of God. We understand the promises of God. They didn't have hope, but we do. And finally, the fifth disadvantage he talks about is that they were without God in the world. Which is an interesting word in the Greek. It is atheos, from which we get our English word atheist. And here I think Paul is being deliberately ironic. Why? Because it's been proven, you know, that in the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans looked at the Jews and the Christians and referred to the Jews and Christians as atheos. They referred to the Jews and the Christians as atheists. Why? Because the Jews and the Christians rejected their pantheism. You The Romans and the Greeks, they had the God of the sun and the God of the moon and the God of that planet and the God of that ocean and the God of that mountain and the God of that sea. They had the God of, I don't know, that donkey. They had the God of everything, right? And the Christians and the Jews come along and they say, no, 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 there's but one God. One true God. And so the Greeks and the Romans looked at the Jews and the Christians and said, you guys are atheists. You reject all of our gods. And they were scorned for being atheists. And here, Paul turns the tables on them and says, No, it's you, nations. It's you, Gentiles, who are truly without God. Even with all of your gods, there are no gods at all. We worship and serve the one true God. And you are without God in this world. So having talked about their identity and their position, here's the point. Because we identify with this. we're not culturally Jewish. We identify with this, and all the descriptions that he's putting down here describe us as well. We didn't have these blessings, we didn't have these promises. Like them, we were far off. And the point is what a truly miserable condition we find ourselves in, apart from Christ. But here's the application. And take hope in this. Because the Apostle Paul says this was their former condition. And even though they had been far off, they have now, in Christ, been brought near. Here's the point. The point is, when you think about your spiritual disadvantages, how wonderful it is But our great God of love and mercy and grace can overcome any spiritual disadvantage. He can overcome any spiritual disadvantage. They didn't have any of the advantages that the Jewish people had, and yet they were still brought near. They were still saved by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. And God was able to overcome any spiritual disadvantage. Were you not raised in a Christian home, did you not grow up going to church? Did you not have a Christian education? Maybe you grew up in an entirely different religion altogether. Or maybe your upbringing was steeped in the secular philosophies of secular education. Maybe you endured significant hardships and suffering and abuses and pain and loss. And regardless of all of the disadvantages that you might have faced, our God is able to overcome and still save. What hope does that bring us? Think about what that means for our evangelism. Maybe some of you are thinking about people right now as you think about who is the last person on earth that you would ever think was going to be saved. How comforting is it to be reminded of the power of the gospel to break through every disadvantage our God can save. And so many of our own testimonies testify to that truth. I was one who hated God. And now I'm his child. I was brought up in a completely false religion, worshipping false gods. And now here I am as one who is saved. The two members at our church in San Diego that come to mind. One gal who was raised in Islam. She was born in the country of Iran. And she shared her testimony with us about how growing up, even though this is what she was born into, it just never sat well with her. And she had all these questions. And one of the things that stood out to her was that in in Iran, women are like second-class citizens. And that's even generous. Women are like animals. In Iran, a man can marry three wives. And if he doesn't like one of them, even though technically it's illegal, he can kill one of them, and he won't ever be prosecuted by the law. And you know what it was? You know what doctrine it was that drew her to Christ? Biblical manhood and womanhood. She said, I had no problem with headship and submission. That was not an issue for me. But to read in Genesis 1 that he created them in the image of God, male and female, in terms of who we are in our being and our value we're equal in the eyes of God she said that was so beautiful she called her mom in Iran and said mom listen to this and her mom said this sounds so beautiful and she got saved I think about a gal who was raised Buddhist and I was sharing with her about the gospel and how it's just such a pointless religion that you're trying to earn your way into upper echelons of existence. And, and I said, it's so pointless, so futile because of our own sinfulness. We are doomed if that's the way it works because we're just spiral downward. We will never achieve any greater status because of our own sinfulness. I and mean, she brought to mind another perspective and said, Pastor Patrick, it's not just that, but Buddhism is a religion of loneliness. And I never considered that before. I said, you need to explain that for me. She said this, in Buddhism, I have no guarantee that everyone in this life that I love the most, I'm ever going to see them again. I may come back in the next life in a completely different existence and my siblings and my parents and all my friends, I may never see them again. You know what's beautiful about Christianity? It's that Jesus promises us that He'll be with us. And that as a church, we have an eternal fellowship. And she got saved. Whatever spiritual disadvantages, God certainly can overcome. And that brings us great hope. Quickly, second point. Not only that you were far off, but remember that you are now brought near. Verse 13. Because the key word here is formerly. Right? In verse 11 he says, therefore remember that formerly you. Formerly. He kind of repeats the idea in verse 12. At that time. At that time you were excluded. You were separate. And now in verse 13 he repeats it. But now in Christ Jesus, you were formerly far off. Have been brought near. This is a key word in the chapter. He said it back in verse 2. He, he said it in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says it again in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived. And so this is the theme that he's running through this entire chapter of what we formerly were. And as you take a second just to think about your own testimony and what you formerly were, from what did God save you? I'm sure there are remarkable testimonies here. Remarkable testimonies of conversion. I was always in awe of that. In my old church, we had a girl who who was saved out of a coven. She was a witch. A Satanist. And as I was listening to her testimony, I was just just in awe. I mean, she had just so recently been saved out of that, she still had like the whole goth appearance. She had come to church dressed all, like, head to toe in black, and black makeup, and the whole thing. And she's showing how Christ dramatically changed her life. Her daughter was also a witch who was dating a warlock, and those two both got saved too. They were all addicted to LSD and all sorts of things, and now what do they do? They go back to that community, they witness to their former friends. What in the world? I remember talking to her thinking, Man, I wish I had that testimony. And I loved her response. She said, No you don't. Look how young you are. I wish I had your testimony. Think about how many more years you'll have living for the Lord than me. I wish I had your testimony. And I think about passages like this where the Apostle Paul walks through all the disadvantages that we have apart from Christ. And it helps us to remember there is no boring testimony. We were all so far away. And by his grace, he brought us near. We all have extraordinary testimonies. We all can testify about what we were formerly and now what we are in Christ if we are saved. Because the formerly, in verse 11, again in verse 13, is clearly contrasted with the but now. But now, in Christ Jesus, We who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And by talking about that, he introduces the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation is the blood of Christ because we talked about all the spiritual disadvantages that the Gentiles had. That they were strangers, that they were outsiders, that they were far off. Let's go back and talk about the advantages of the Jews. Because they did have the patriarchs. And they did have the oracles of God. And they did have the presence of God. And they did have the law of God. And they had all of that, the promises of the Messiah. They had all of it. All of the advantages. And if you go back to Romans chapter 3, and again in Romans chapter 9, where the apostle Paul walks through all the advantages that the Jewish people had. What is his conclusion? None of it saved them either. In other words, our hope is not in our spiritual advantages. They were just as far off even having been given all of those advantages. They were still dead in their sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point is that these spiritual benefits and the advantages don't save you. The means of our salvation is the blood of Christ. Christ. The cross of Christ. The grace of God. Everything that he had said in the previous ten verses. You've been saved by grace, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, this has application for us. Because how easy is it for us to kind of slide into the mentality of thinking if only they had been born into different circumstances. And surely they would be saved. Parents, how dangerous is it to fall into this mentality that private school is going to save your children? but homeschooling is what's going to save your children? We're not saved by our spiritual advantages. Can God use those advantages? Can God use those circumstances? Absolutely. And are those things unimportant? That's not what I'm saying. But what is our ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope is that we're saved by the blood of Christ. I love the way the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 5 because he makes it so simple. This is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And those who have the Son have the life. And those who do not have the Son of God, what? Don't have the life. Forget advantages and disadvantages. If you don't know the Son of God, then you don't have eternal life. It comes back to what you do with Jesus. One final observation. And I love this. Notice that in verse 13, the verb is passive. Apostle Paul doesn't say you were far off, but you came near. He doesn't say that. He says you were once formerly far off, but you have been brought near. It's passive. Because as you know, our salvation doesn't come down to our effort, it's not about our obedience at our, our adherence to rules and laws and regulations. It's not about just our participation in service. It's not about how much we give to the offering. It's not about how consistently we come to church. It's not about how moral we are. How does God save us? We are the passive recipients of his grace. It's by grace you have been saved. Why? Verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were lined up with everything, every force that is in opposition to God. The world, the flesh, the devil himself. That was your allegiance. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but how amazing in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with christ it 's by grace you have been saved, and we see a similar contrast here in verses eleven through thirteen that you were once formerly far off, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been near. And he could insert that refrain again. Because it's by grace that you're saved. Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? I know we hear the testimony still in San Diego. of People who tell us that their confidence was in the fact that they kept coming to church. People who told us, I went to church since I was a kid. I just assumed I was a Christian. Folks, coming to church is not what makes you a Christian. Being involved in an assembly like this is not what makes you a Christian. We have so many collegians who come to us and tell us that the only reason they pursued membership at the church is because all their friends did. But then there was a day of awakening when they realized that their faith needed to be their own. And God got a hold of them and helped them to see their depraved self. The wickedness, their need for salvation. They knew they needed a Savior. And they knew that their own efforts could not do it. And so God miraculously grabbed hold of them. And even though they were once far off, He brought them near. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. Have you been saved? Because even this morning... All of this can be different for you. If you're not a Christian today, this could be true of you, that you once formerly lived this life in abject rebellion against God. And He can transform you and give you a new identity and a new position and everything can be different now in Christ. It's by His grace if we would confess our sins And trust in Jesus for salvation. God, save me because I can't save myself. Forgive me because I can't atone for my own sin. And the Bible promises us that He'll give you new life in His Son. Would you trust in Jesus, even today? Please don't leave without finding more about that. Just turn, to some, just turn to the person next to you and ask them, because I'm sure they would be eager to share with you their testimony. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, there's a whole lot in this passage. And I pray, Father, that you would bring clarity and understanding and light Father, if nothing else, help us to remember that even though we were once far off, by Your grace, You brought us near. And so we have much to celebrate, much to rejoice in, and every reason to be thankful for every minute, every second of every day of our lives because of what You've done for us. We thank You for the amazing Gospel. We thank You even more for our amazing Savior. Thank You for Jesus who made the way possible. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we pray, God, that your name would be exalted. As your word is preached, Lord, keep it on our hearts, we pray. Amen.